Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. If you've ever dealt with little children, and by little we're talking from the time they can talk, well into their teens and possibly 20s, when you ask a question, it's a pretty solid bet that you'll get an answer along the lines of, I don't know. Fortunately, as we grow into adulthood, the tendency to default to that clearly quasi-factual answer disappears and we strive to gather facts and analyze data and, and increase education and... Wait, wait a minute. No? I'm being told that no, no, adults still say I don't know, but they do it in a more adult kind of way, <laughs> which is even more infuriating, especially when the answers to the questions are, uh, or at least should be, beyond obvious. On today's episode, I'm thinking that since it's my choice, I should change my pronouns to scote he and scote us. And after I figure that out, we'll attempt to answer the age-old question, is the Pope Catholic? And then we're going to get real close, but no cigar. So hurry up and choose your gender, grab your rosary beads, and swing and miss as badly as I did in high school, because uh, I think, uh, oh, well, uh, I don't know. Are we? Is it time to go? Yeah, whatever. Let's try it. Here we go. Let me take you back to the Christmas season, as a kid. Do you remember the anticipation, the wonder, the hoping and wishing that every gift you wanted would arrive on Christmas morning? Kids these days don't have the same fun I did, getting the Sears catalog, the big one, the big toy catalog, going through it, circling uh, just about everything, because hey, you never know, right? And then you get up that morning, way too early, and if you were like my family, we had to wait. Mom had to be up to watch us open the stocking, and family all had to be assembled so we could open the presents one at a time. Eh, seems like it was a simpler time, probably because it was. But do you remember that feeling when you tore into that one gift you've been eyeballing? And it was something like uh, socks or a sweater, you know, and let's be honest here, something not exciting, you know, maybe nice, maybe needed, but just not flashy and not toy-like. Do you remember that feeling, the high you were on and then the massive crash as the realization set in? Well, I'm afraid that that's exactly what a large number of conservatives have done or are currently doing or are being told to do by the conservative media regarding President Mushmouth's Supreme Court pick to replace Justice Stephen Breyer. Now, unless you've been living off the grid in the mountains somewhere, and if you have, can I join you? <clears throat> President 81 million votes has selected the best person for the job in all of America, out of the subset of Blafrican, his word, American women. So, maybe the best choice, maybe only the best choice out of what he limited himself to. The world will never know. Biden certainly doesn't know. He probably just thinks she's another sister of his, like he did with his wife. I digress. His selection is Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, who on paper is more than qualified for the position. So we could take one of many articles that have 
come out over the few days of her confirmation hearings. But let's select an article of what has likely become one of the larger stories to come out from usatoday.com. Headline, Marsha Blackburn asks Katanji Brown-Jackson to define woman. Science says there's no simple answer. Yeah, well, science probably does say that, and Ms. Brown-Jackson said she wasn't a biologist, so she couldn't answer that, which, as many have pointed out, is odd, since she was in the selection pool based solely on the fact that she was black and a woman. Huh. Now, my point is not to focus on this article, because, wow, there's really literally no point. This article quotes some of the dumbest people on the planet, flat out. Let me just cover one paragraph that pretty much sums it up, and then we'll move on. The article states, quote, Scientists, gender law scholars, and philosophers of biology said Jackson's response was commendable, though perhaps misleading. It's useful, they say, that Jackson suggested science could help answer Blackburn's question, but they note that a competent biologist would not be able to offer a definitive answer either. Scientists agree there is no sufficient way to clearly define what makes someone a woman, and with billions of women on the planet, there is much variation. <laughs> End quote. Okay, hold up. Scientists? Agree? I'd like to have the names of these scientists as they should be on a list of scientists to never ask to do, analyze, write, or think anything as they're literally morons. As for variations, just because there are, what, hundreds of varieties of birds? They're still birds. If scientists, gender law scholars, and philosophers of biology are having trouble... Let me give them a few quick potential clues. First, was this person born with a vagina? If yes, I think we're hot on the trail of an answer. Second, can this person carry a growing child inside of them? And then, when the bun is done, can they issue it forth out of the oven, as it were? If yes... <laughs> I think we've really got something here. Third, can this person naturally produce sustenance for the baby in its, because we haven't totally determined if this person is a woman yet, body and provide it to the baby through her, well, bazooms? If yes, we're moving from warm to hot. Lastly, if a scientist a competent one, so apparently we need to choose carefully, drew some blood or whatever they need and analyzed this person's chromosomes. Do they have two X chromosomes? If yes, well, then hot dog, we've got our answer. That right there, my friend, that's a woman. This is why I'd like for us to stop using appearance, stop using feelings, stop using declarations. Let's get this down to the genetic level, the chromosomal level. We can put an XX on one bathroom door and an XY on the other, something like that, and, and just be done with all of the idiocy. Now that I've cleared that up, back to the point of this commentary. I'm hearing a lot of conservative talkers that are lamenting this SCOTUS pick. She can't define woman. 
She can't answer for her rulings on child pornographers. She can't answer when life begins. She's unclear about how non-citizens could be considered illegal. She's pro-critical race theory. She's a very confused person, or, or so it seems. Which, I don't know, maybe that right there is a strike against her being confirmed, although she'll absolutely be confirmed, let's be honest here. So let me point out a few things that conservatives seem to be forgetting. They've built up this anticipation, a la Christmas morning, and I'm not entirely sure why. First, Biden is doing the selecting, (laughs) whether he knows it or not, and he's a far-left socialist with even farther-left socialist handlers. Second, elections have consequences, even stolen ones. The bottom line is that, at this point, it really doesn't matter if this election was legit or not, as it's complete. And for however much longer the meds work, Biden is the president. And with that, he generally gets to choose the next Supreme Court justice. Third, as I said, on paper, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson easily meets the qualifications to be a Supreme Court justice. And fourth, look who she'd replace. I mean, y'all do realize that Stephen Breyer isn't exactly a disciple of Christ, right? I mean, he's a flaming liberal appointed by THE Bill Clinton himself. So that's where I want to land this aeroplane. What are Breyer's views on some key topics that most conservatives and Christians feel strongly about? Regarding abortion. I don't know if he could answer when life begins, but it doesn't appear he cares. He's pro Roe versus Wade. He's cool with partial birth abortion. He's fine with parents not being notified that their child is getting an abortion, etc., etc. Looking at civil rights, he's pro special rights for trans people. He's pro gay marriage. He's pro special rights for gay individuals. He voted for Obamacare. He said that the Boy Scouts must hire gay leaders, etc., etc. As for crime, he's soft on anything to do with the death penalty. He doesn't believe that fleeing from police is enough to warrant a search, etc. Looking at education, in 2010, he apparently stated that inequality in schools is rooted in the institution of slavery. He also has no problem with race-based college preference if it's done person by person, which okay, etc. Regarding environment, he's very liberal with the powers given to the EPA, and he's fine with eminent domain, or as I like to call it, governmental property theft, if it's applied to public economic developments, etc. Some random beliefs that he has. He thinks the Supreme Court can learn from foreign laws. He ruled to award an illegal alien back pay when he was fired for union organizing, And I'm not even sure what to do with that one, to be honest. He believes that lawful gun owners have no right to have a loaded gun in a crime-ridden city. Because in a crime-ridden city, that's where you shouldn't have a gun. He believes that all male military schools must allow women in their all-male military school. And he doesn't believe illegal aliens should be automatically deported. And there are many more. A link to ontheissues.org is in the notes if you're curious. 
So if Judge Brown Jackson is confirmed, and she will be, does it matter? What changes? Why are we, and we being defined as Christians and or conservatives, why are we worried about this? Breyer has never voted in a conservative way. He's one vote. She'd be one vote. Regardless of how radical her personal viewpoints are, she can't vote more left or harder socialist. She has a single vote out of nine. We know that Biden will never choose a moderate because that's not what he's being told to do. So rather than think of Breyer leaving and Jackson coming, just think of it as votes. A liberal vote leaving, a liberal vote coming, and even swap. So as Christians, what do we do? And I'm sure I'm going to be covering this much more in the next few months. Well, we realize that when we vote for anyone in government, we're not in church. We're not voting for a pastor-in-chief. We're not voting for a state elder or a house of trustees. We're voting for maybe saved, maybe not saved people to represent us, represent Christian morals and ethics as best as possible. This isn't a pro-Trump thing, but he is one of the easiest to use to illustrate my point due to his divisive personality. I did not vote for him the first time around. I actually voted independent for the first time ever, but I didn't vote for him because I didn't believe he was going to uphold conservative principles. I was wrong. So the second time I voted for his record, not for him, not for his personality, not for his tweets, his record. Personally, I'm of the opinion that if you voted for a man that's pro-baby murder because the other guy was brash and you're a Christian, uh, you've got some real soul-searching to do and I think repenting to do. But this is what we have to realize. We're voting in sinners. Some, maybe even most, unrepentant sinners. We cannot expect them to act like Christians if they aren't but we can expect them to uphold the general principles that Christians hold to, to whatever degree the best option we can vote for will. And since elections have consequences, we vote in our best option based on party platform, based on that person's stated principles, stated positions on the issues, and on that person's track record, and we leave the personality clashes, the pettiness on our part, behind. Because everyone who voted for Biden, even those that were dead, and especially those that voted for him two or three or more times, you're culpable for what he does. You're complicit. If you voted against Trump, then you voted for Biden and everything he brings with him, including a liberal justice to replace a liberal justice. As Christians, we vote for positions on issues, and some issues, like abortion, like gender confusion, carry more weight than others. To vote in any other way is silly and potentially dangerous. Don't let your piety cloud your reasoning. I'll leave this here for now, but in the near future, we'll talk about this more. I'm sure of it because election season is once again coming up fast. I begin this article with a little trepidation as I feel I may be stepping on more landmines than I have feet but there's absolutely nothing I can do about it now. So here we are. Let me start with a few key definitions. And yes, I realize that's not how you capture an audience, but if you've been listening to this podcast at all, you're not really surprised like this. You're like, yeah, no, yeah, this makes sense. So let's jump in. Morals 
defined as principles and beliefs concerning right and wrong behavior. Obligation, a duty, contract, or promise that compels one to follow or avoid a particular course of action. Moral obligation, a duty to follow a particular course of action based on your principles and beliefs concerning right and wrong. Psychosis, an acute or chronic mental state marked by loss of contact with reality. Universalism, the theological doctrine that all people will eventually be saved. From LifeSiteNews.com, headline, Pope Francis abruptly removes faithful bishop who opposed COVID vaccine mandates. Do you see now why I have some hesitation? But I think this is something we should talk about. Now, before we start, I'm going to call on all the powers of my engineering training and set a few boundary conditions on this review, as there are places I could go, but that would be missing the point. First, this will not be a commentary on the safety or efficacy of the so-called COVID vaccine. If you know me or you've listened to me, you know my thoughts on this, but honestly, the article at hand has very little to do with that. I will interject where needed, but for the most part, this is not a commentary. Second, this will not be a commentary on the Catholic religion as a whole. As a Protestant Christian, I believe that the religion is severely flawed, and maybe someday we'll go into that deeper, but today is not that day. Again, I will comment on certain aspects as needed. Lastly, I am not going to try to do the Spanish-type accents that all the news anchors and commentators seem to try to do these days, you know, to sound more cultured. So you will hear Puerto Rico rather than Puerto Rico. So with that, let's do this. On March 9th, Bishop Daniel Fernandez Torres was relieved of his duties to the Diocese of Arecibo, I, I have no idea, in Puerto Rico. Bishop Torres, 57 years old, has been faithfully serving this diocese for 12 years and, as an outspoken conservative, has a long track record of defending the sanctity of life and of the family. He was also a vocal opponent of the COVID vaccine mandates. He was relieved of duty without any formal proceedings, no formal allegations, no accusations. He was just gone. And why? Well, <laughs> because he disobeyed, and I use that term loosely, the very mouthpiece of Christ himself, his grand exalted popeness, and because of, quote, lack of collegiality with fellow Puerto Rican bishops. This happened after he refused a verbal request for him to just resign, even though if he had resigned, they would have allowed him to remain, quote, at the service of the church, so maybe they'd use him in the future. And how many among us have been fired for gross defiance and general lacking of the ability to play well with others, but told that if we just stepped aside, we can keep working there? Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense. The Holy Father, His Highness Pope Francis, has been very clear that getting jabbed with an unknown substance hastily produced that does very little against a virus that's overall not what we were scared into thinking it was, is a moral obligation. You know, loving your brother or your neighbor or some such out-of-context biblery like that. Although I have my doubts that the current pope would have any idea or even care if what he says is actually biblical or not. Bishop Torres had put out a statement in July or August of 2021 stating that a Catholic could, in good conscience, decline the jabby jab if he or she feels that's the best choice for them. 
And although I personally think it's a weak argument, and I wouldn't and haven't used it in religious exemptions, he stated that the fact that aborted fetal tissue was used in the creation and testing of these magic elixirs allowed people to refuse the shot. He further authorized the priests in his diocese to sign religious exemption requests for parishioners. About a week later, Puerto Rico's other six bishops issued a statement of which Torres refused to sign on to, saying that the vaxxed and unvaxxed, or should we say good Catholics and bad Catholics, respectively, would be segregated during Mass, and that clergy and church employees must surrender their bodies to the good Catholic potion. Bishop Torres isn't alone in his stance, although as of now it appears he's alone in his punishment by Fuhrer Francis. Bishops in South Dakota and California and an archbishop in Argentina, among others, have dared to defy the popist whims. I'm sure a ruler is being readied for their knuckles as well. Archbishop Hector Aguar from Argentina in part said this, quote, The current church is no longer concerned with God or with Christ's mandate to evangelize, but only with imposing new paradigms and adhering to the principles of a new world order alien to the natural law and Christian revelation. He went on to say, quote, As never before, Roman centrality is imposed in the name of unity. These positions make us yearn for the freedom that the great popes supported, supporting the episcopate that was committed to the growth of the church and the evangelization of those who were still outside of it. That's pretty scathing, really. I'm sure his uppance is forthcoming. And I think the saddest statement in this article is from Bishop Torres himself, he says, quote, I express my communion in the Catholic faith with the Pope and my brothers in the Episcopate despite my perplexity at an incomprehensible arbitrariness. And to which I'd say, really? I mean, from the outside looking in, how can he not see what's going on here? But, you know, I guess if he's poured his entire life into his faith, you can see how he's probably just stunned how what's happening doesn't make sense with his worldview. Now that we've covered the gist of the story, I want to focus in on the unbiblical psychosis of the current Pope. I've heard faith leaders of all stripes make the claim that getting this particular mRNA gene therapy is a moral obligation, to which I'd have to ask, is it? We're all called to love our neighbor as ourself. If I truly believe that this chemical has the potential to cause harm, why would I just get it as a show of love for someone else? Wouldn't I do what I could to try to warn that someone else? Wouldn't that be the truly loving thing rather than stand by and let them get injected with what I perceive to be a harmful chemical? And can we just talk about how this is touted as a vaccine, but you're not protected unless I get one too? There's literally no other vaccine that works this way. I've never walked around afraid that I'll catch some polio because that freak down the street never loved his neighbor and got his shots. I've had the polio vaccine. He can do what he wants. I'm good. Beside that, we are not supposed to be beholden to a man claiming to speak the actual words of Christ that seem to change dramatically from pope to pope, and I really wish Christ would make up his mind uh, in everything that we do. We let the Bible and the Holy Spirit lead us, and the spiritual leaders in our lives are there to assist, teach, and guide us, not tell us what we're supposed to do in every aspect of life. The Bible does not speak about vaccines or anything remotely close to that concept, which means it's adiaphora. 
It's something that we have the individual liberty to follow our conscience, and to violate our conscience is in fact sin. So the Pope is basically mandating that a percentage of Catholics literally violate their consciences and literally sin in order to allegedly love their neighbor by injecting themselves with a chemical they don't feel is safe or effective rather than warn others of their concerns because the person who claims to be the vicar of Christ bought into the fear porn and said to do it. And this is biblical? So I come back to the title of the segment, a sarcastic statement that used to be used to exclaim absolute confidence in a stated position, but now is a legitimate question. Is the Pope Catholic? To which the answer is, as much as I don't agree with most of the Catholic teachings, uh, no, no, he is not Catholic. Pope Francis is a liberal socialist, a borderline Marxist, an eco-warrior, a universalist, and a globalist. You can read some of the articles I have linked in the notes, but from before he was voted into the popery, his liberal leanings, and I'd say unbiblical worldview, was well known. I'll give you some bite-sized morsels, and I'll let you take it from there. In May 2013, he said this, quote, The Lord has redeemed all of us, all of us, with the blood of Christ. All of us, not just Catholics, everyone, even the atheists, everyone. Well, hold on there, Shooter. Unless the Catholic religion has a meaning of redeemed that can't be found anywhere, that's simply not accurate. Clearly, some people go to hell for failure to repent and believe, regardless of if you're Calvinist, where God elects those who will be saved, or Armenian, where you have the final say regardless of what God wants. Clearly, not everyone is redeemed. If they are, that means that we all go to heaven, and surely that's not what the Pope means, right? <sighs> right? In July of 2013, when asked about homosexuals, he said this, quote, If someone is gay and he searches for the Lord and has goodwill, who am I to judge? Well, I mean, from Catholic perspective, you're the mouthpiece of Christ to us on earth, so it seems like from the Catholic worldview, if there was anyone that could judge, it would have to be him. That said, homosexuality is clearly stated as being a sin in both the Old and New Testament. See the end of Romans 1, for example. Unrepentant sin, living a life of homosexuality, is in fact an indicator of an unsaved individual. But this Pope is not taking a clear stand. He is literally complicit in sending these people to hell. We all make judgment calls on hundreds or thousands of things per day. For Christians, we are required to judge others based on actions, based on fruits, and take whatever action is prescribed whether that's presenting the gospel to someone we perceive as being lost, or using our iron to sharpen the iron of a fellow Christian when we see they're struggling in their walk. Francis sounds more like he's listening to the woke mob rather than reading his Bible. Pope Francis has repeatedly expressed how pollution is a sin and how we, again, have a moral obligation, he keeps coming up with this, to fight global warming, to which, again, I'd have to ask, do we? The Pope has put his faith and hope in science, not in God. We're told to care for God's creation, the planet, the animals, the people, but we're not called to idolize it. Pollution is not a sin. There's no way to justify that biblically. For him to say that is in fact a lie, which ironically is a sin. Furthermore, to assume we're going to destroy the planet as little humans, and that God is up there just hoping beyond hope that we get our act together before we wreck the place— is to believe in a small, impotent God. 
not the omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign God of the Bible. But to be honest, I don't think Francis really believes much of the Bible anyway. The Pope has a track record of embracing those into the church that are in clear violation of the historic teachings of the church and or the Bible. In January 2015, he welcomed a woman who had transitioned to be a man and her fiancé to the Vatican. When she asked the Pope if they had a place in the church, the pontiff embraced her. Now, although I believe abortion is a very grievous sin, I do believe that a person can repent and be forgiven for this sin and can be saved. Catholics believe this is a mortal sin and special authority is required to grant forgiveness. Francis decided to streamline this process, apparently because he doesn't think it's fair. I I don't know. Or maybe abortion is not big of a deal to him. I mean, in addition to this, he really doesn't find any reason to be worried about the aborted fetal tissue being used in the vaccines. One would think that the Pope, of all people, would find that troubling. He also welcomed Joe Biden to the Vatican, and despite knowing Biden is a huge proponent for a woman's right to choose to slaughter her unborn baby, he told Biden that he was a good Catholic. I don't, I don't think that's right. And similar to abortion, the process of divorce, remarriage, and reinstatement to the church has always been a very specific process needing specific authority. Eh, he streamlined that as well, because look, we're in the 21st century now. In February of 2021, he said that the coronavirus has provided the perfect opportunity for economies of the world to reimagine markets and push businesses to put social justice rather than profits at the core of their pursuits. So it pushed to socialism to make sure everyone is equal. I'm not sure if he knows this or not, but socialism in the forms of communism or Nazism are responsible for, what, tens, hundreds of millions of deaths? where capitalism, even our current screwed-up form, is responsible for feeding millions, pulling millions out of poverty, providing clean water, sanitation, electricity, connectivity around the world, for increasing lifespans and overall making life better. Social justice, despite what he may think, is not in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it speak of forced charity, We are supposed to take care of the widow and the orphan. We are supposed to love and care for our neighbor. But nowhere did Jesus or any of the New Testament writers advocate or mandate a forced socialistic economy. The idea that social justice is biblical is laughable. Jesus was concerned with the salvation of the lost, not that they have the same financial situation or the same economic opportunities or the same amount of stuff. Are there any better priorities for us to have than those that Jesus had? According to Francis, yes, there's a lot of better priorities. For the sake of time, I'll let you continue researching from here if you'd like, but hopefully you can see that at least this Pope doesn't really care what the Bible says. He cares what the alleged science says and what the social justice warriors say and what the popular ever-changing opinion of the day says. When you place on top of this dog's breakfast of a worldview, the fact that historically Catholicism does not present a clear path of salvation, requires works to be saved, is added in beliefs, customs, and rituals that can't be justified biblically, and has turned Mary, the apostles, and countless saints into idols to pray to and worship, necessitating a modified Ten Commandments, yeah, look it up in order to pull that off, my, my question is, why would anyone follow these teachings? It's not shocking that the Pope is as far off the rails as he is in whatever it is that he believes. This is just a natural extension of a religion that kind of makes it up as they go. I know this may not be the most popular opinion, but I don't think I'm wrong here. 
The Bible is very clear. Salvation is by grace through faith, neither of which are of ourselves, but rather a gift from God so that we can't stand back and admire ourselves for how good we are, for the works we've done, for how many Hail Marys we've said. Once saved, we are to love God with all our being. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves, and we are to love our Christian brothers and sisters, and then we are called to go and tell others about the hope we have in Christ. Not hope as in, I sure hope I'm going to heaven, which is the general answer Catholics must give based on their belief structure, but an assurance, a reliance placed in God to keep his promises that through repentance and belief we are saved and nobody can pluck us out of his hand. My prayer is that by the actions, the expressed beliefs, the confusing doctrine, the obvious non-Catholicness of the Pope, is that not only Catholic parishioners, but also the priests, bishops, and all those along the hierarchy will have a revelation as Martin Luther did and find the real Christ, the real hope, the real peace found in the real Bible as stated in the real gospel. Have you ever known someone that's given all the information, had everything explained to them? It's all laid out. They confirm that they understand everything that's been discussed and presented. Then, uh, boom, wrong conclusion. I mean, out of nowhere. And you're just standing back in shock like, what, what just happened here? You, you gotta be joking, right? Now, I could tell personal stories. <clears throat> I won't, but I could. And look, none of us are innocent here. We've all done this. We've all had trouble grasping the obvious. We could attribute this to just being stubborn or being thick, but I'd argue that many times this is due to something akin to confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is a cognitive bias that causes the individual to tend to listen for, hear, observe, and interpret information in a way that supports what they already believe to be true. Put simply, both parties can be given the same evidence and will both reach different conclusions based on their beliefs prior to being presented with the same evidence. We can see this in religious arguments, relationships, politics, even science, which is supposed to be perfectly unbiased, <laughs> but isn't. The reality is, we all struggle with this bias from time to time, as well as myriad other biases, and breaking our minds free from this locked-in thought process is incredibly difficult. This goes beyond a surface-level, you know, smile and nod when presented with conflicting information. This requires us to lay our current worldview aside, if only for a few minutes, in order to objectively look at what we're being presented. And then it requires a willingness to be wrong. <laughs> and don't nobody like doing that. From the New York Times via DaytonNews.com, because I continue to refuse to pay for a subscription to the New York Times online, headline, Life's Preference for Symmetry is like, quote, a new law of nature. Ah, okay, right off the bat, I want to point out two spots in just the headline where they're setting up a false construct that they expect we, the readers, to just read and accept. There are two spots that the author has anthropomorphized non-life. Now, that's just a $20 word, or probably in today's economy, I don't know, what are we up to now, like a $50 word? That simply means we've given a human characteristic to something that's not human. The first place is that the headline says, life's preference. Well, life isn't a being. Life 
is just life. It, it literally can't have a preference. But it's stated this way for a reason. And then second, a new law of nature. Well, this one's a bit harder to spot, but the fact that there is a law requires a giver of that law. In this case, the law giver is stated as nature. Well, again, nature doesn't give laws. Nature has to abide by laws, but it's not able to dictate laws that must be followed. Let's get into this article a little bit. It gets better, or, or worse. The premise is set forth in the first sentence. Symmetry thrives in nature. Okay. The author then presents the problem at the end of the first paragraph, quote, symmetrical shapes are too common in living beings to be random. So not everything is symmetrical, but they give examples of things like each half of an elephant, uh, side to side, not front to back, or a butterfly. They point out that proteins and RNA are symmetrical. Now, not everything has this characteristic, but they find it prevalent everywhere. The question they put forth and the conundrum that's requiring an answer is in the next paragraph. Quote, why is symmetry prevalent? Biologists aren't sure. There's no reason based on natural selection for the prevalence of symmetry in such diverse life forms and their building blocks. Okay, now any Christian out there, at least any Christian that actually believes what the Bible says about creation, should be on the edge of their seat. I mean, the answer is right there. This may be it. They, the scientists, might finally have to admit that, quote, it seems like a good answer might come from the field of computer science. <laughs> they were right there. Uh, okay, 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 okay. Maybe it can. Let's continue on with the article. Maybe they pull this out. In a study that was analyzing thousands of proteins and RNA structures, quote, they found that evolution tends to be symmetrical because the instructions for creating symmetry are easier to embed and follow in the genetic code. Now, the article quotes a few of the researchers. Ard Louis, the author and a physicist at Oxford, says, quote, people are often quite amazed that evolution can create these incredible structures, and we show that it's actually easier than you think. Oh. Okay. A co-author, Chico Camargo, a lecturer in computer science at the University of Exeter, adds, quote, it's great because it changes the way you see the world. Yeah, Chico, it sure could, you know, if you'd open your eyes. Well, while running simulations on viruses, and can we stop experimenting on viruses, please? But this was actually a long time ago. They found that, quote, structures were strongly biased towards symmetry and arose much more often than pure chance would allow. <sighs> yes, I agree. You're right there. You're nearly there. But then they explain that the algorithms for creating these type of symmetries are easier to execute and harder to mess up. They go on to explain it's like giving instructions how to lay a simple tile floor. And then they say that thinking of RNA and proteins as little I.O. machines that just execute little programs is a better explanation of how this tendency of life towards simplicity and symmetry happens, rather than the classic Darwinian theory of survival of the fittest. And then, of course, they extrapolate this outward from their microscopic studies to infer that if nature prefers simplicity and symmetry in small things, why not large things as well? For instance, quote, it would make a lot of sense if nature could reuse the program to create a petal rather than having a separate program for each of the 100 petals around a sunflower. Notice uh, if, quote, nature could reuse. 
nature. Huh. So a complex systems researcher not involved in this study said, quote, the universe tends to increase randomness all the time, but these simple symmetrical building blocks help to understand this complexity. Okay. So if I were to sum up their analysis of the study, I'd have to quote Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park. Life finds a way. Let me state again, the problem they have is that they're anthropomorphizing non-human things. A few of the examples are, evolution can create. No, evolution can't create. It's a scientific theory. <laughs> At best, it literally has no creative powers. They also say, nature prefers simplicity and symmetry. No, nature doesn't have a preference because nature isn't a conscious thing being capable of having preferences. And they say, quote, if nature could reuse, nature doesn't use or reuse anything. It does what it's told. It quite simply just performs the processes that have been encoded into it. Now, what we have here is a textbook example of Romans 1, 18 through 20, which states, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. I mean, they literally see it. They're right there. It's right in front of them. Look at the language that they use. Quote, symmetrical shapes are too common in living beings to be random. Quote, why is symmetry prevalent? Biologists aren't sure. There's no reason based on natural selection for the prevalence of symmetry in such diverse life forms and their building blocks. Quote, they found evolution tends to be symmetrical because the instructions for creating symmetry are easier to embed and follow in the genetic code. Quote, people are often quite amazed that evolution can create these incredible structures. Quote, it's like we've discovered a new law of nature. Quote, the resulting structures were strongly biased toward symmetry and arose much more often than pure chance would allow. Quote, explains the trend toward symmetry in a way that Darwinian survival of the fittest failed to do. Quote, this makes evolution look a bit like a biased game of loaded dice. Quote, to explain how such an inherent and such a universal feature even arises in evolution, in nature is something. <laughs> so, they can't be random. There's no reason for it. It's like a law. Pure chance can't explain it. Darwinian evolution can't explain it. Makes evolution look guided or planned. That's the loaded dice theory. This is quite literally confirmation bias, or more accurately, this is the God of this world blinding the eyes of man, and at the same time, it shows how God has elected to blind the eyes of some for his ultimate purpose, which is to bring glory to himself. Let me explain. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we see that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the eyes of man from seeing the truth. But at the same time, God is not in a back-and-forth battle with Satan trying to, you know, outthink, outwit, and outlast his opponent. No, God is sovereign, which means that ultimately Satan can do nothing that God not only permits, 
but foreordains, ultimately for the good of his children and his glory. Toward the end of Jesus' life on earth, as he is once again teaching the crowds, he left and John writes, quote, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We know that God created everything. He did so in six 24-hour days. <laughs> okay, yes, I know all the arguments for long periods of time versus days. I know the day-age theory. I know the gap theory. These are all obvious nonsense. Uh, you know, if you read your Bible, they're nothing but attempts to shoehorn alleged science into the Bible. But evolutionary science is not, in fact, science by definition. It's a religion. They must have immense faith that what they believe is true, as there's infinitely less physical evidence for anything evolutionary than there is for biblical accuracy. So what they're actually trying to do is force a second religion, a humanist religion, into the Bible. That's generally not um, a good idea. It's suboptimal. Anyway, rant aside, God created in six 24-hour days. He clearly used similar design, similar concepts for all of creation. Think carbon-based life. Think cellular structures. Think general functions of limbs and joint, and, and the list is unending. Why would he use symmetry? I don't know. Maybe because God is a God of order, not chaos. Why would he use simplicity? I don't know. Maybe because, per his ultimate plan, sin would have to enter the world and with sin brings randomness, entropy, chaos, and death, and the systems that God set in place could more easily replicate with more simple structures. Seems logical to me. And this is what we find. From a Christian standpoint, man has been basically unchanged in 6,000 plus years. That's a lot of copies of copies of humans with relatively few errors in the code. And if you're an evolutionist, <laughs> we're talking 200,000 years of modern human. That's even more impressive. Think of all the copies, especially since that was all brought about through random chance mutations and survival of the fittest. <laughs> I'll give you a moment to stop laughing. <clears throat> okay, and look at Neanderthal. And yes, I like the hard T sound rather than the TH sound because uh, it sounds more intellectual and it's more fun to say that way. The Neanderthal is a human. Regardless of the scientific mumbo-jumbo you're fed, the reality is that they were just a specific people group, a race, although that's a stupid term used by unthinking people, in today's parlance. Bottom line, as one creationist that I've learned a lot from in the past says, God did it this way to make the evolutionist look stupid. And wow, from their own comments, they just look absolutely clueless. So to wrap this up, don't let yourself be fooled by the language of what's being passed off as science today. Look into it. Look at their own words. They only see and interpret what fits their baked-in bias. But when they try to relate to others, the absolute miraculous works of God comes shining through because they can't hide it. It's just hidden from their minds. 
And by the same token, you should not be closed-minded to what they're trying to say. Read it for what they claim. Evaluate it honestly. If you open your mind to what they believe to be true and you analyze it without any bias, looking at it from first the evolutionist perspective and then weighing it against the biblical worldview, I guarantee that you'll find the theory of evolution is sorely lacking. And the biblical account of creation and history, although not exhaustive, clearly aligns with what our own senses and our own perception tells us. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.